0: You're right, I didn't have it on. I'd especially like to echo what's already been said. Thank you to all the parents for bringing your kids to us, giving us the opportunity to not only minister to them, but to get blessed. They bless us, and so we appreciate that so very much. Just a couple of things. Uh, As the kids go to Children's Church this morning, uh, we are going to be having a potluck lunch here in just a few moments. How many of you like that idea? And it's for everybody. We recommend that everybody be a part of this. Among the things that you may or may not know about this church is that we like to eat. And we always have plenty of food. So, no matter if you came prepared, please join us. We'd love to have an opportunity to get to know you a little better. And most of all, to... Give you a great meal to cap off a great Sunday morning. So, uh, as soon as I get done, we'll we'll go eat. Okay, Lord bless you, kids. You can go. Yes, yes if you have if you have little kids, we do have a nursery worker uh, for ages three and below. So, be sure and take advantage of that and get yourself some some time to just listen to the word this morning. Again, I'm so thankful for you being here today. It's always, it's always uh, a blessing to be able to preach on Christmas. And I know that we're a couple of weeks away from that yet, but we've been preaching a Christmas series for almost two months now. Uh, we're talking about the goodness of God. How many of you know that God is good? All the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen? And we've tied that into the Christmas message this morning. And today, I'm going to be bringing you a message entitled, The God of Great Joy. Now, I'm going to do this a little bit different this morning because I'm not going to preach very long. How many of you like that idea? But I want to begin with a little game of sorts. And the way that it works is I'd like for you to respond to me with the first answer that comes to your mind when I ask a question. I don't want you to do this, this big moral evaluation and, in an effort to tell me what you think I want to hear. I want you to just answer the question. I can tell you in advance they're not difficult. So when I ask the question, just give me the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Here's question number one. Your boss says that your place of employment is being reorganized. And your job that you've had is going away. But lucky for you, there are two positions that you can apply for. One would be a promotion with more pay. And the other would be a demotion, but at least you'd have a job. Which one interests you more? I'm not hearing you. The promotion, of course. Second question. You get the promotion, and the promotion means that you're going to move to a new office, and there are two offices that you can choose from. One of them has a window that looks out over a beautiful pond with trees and green grass, and the other has a window that faces a sanitary landfill. Which one do you want? One or two? There, you're doing well. Next question. At this new managerial level job that you've been promoted to, you've been given access to what is called the executive dining room, where they serve steak, seafood, and all types of desserts for free. Now, you can, however, choose to eat with us ordinary folks in the cafeteria, where sandwiches, soups, and salads are offered, and again, offered free of charge. Which dining area would you like to eat in, one or two? Very good. Last question. At your new managerial level, you're going to be traveling often, mostly by air. Now, the company is paying for your flights, and they have told you that you can choose to fly business class instead of coach if you prefer. Which one do you want to fly? Business class. More legroom. Better food. Now, you might be wondering why I'm asking such silly questions on a Sunday morning. But I'm guessing that in those questions, you've noticed that there was a pattern emerging. You see, as human beings, we have this attraction to climbing the ladder rather than descending from the ladder, especially when it comes to personal preferences. You know, we... We here in America, we talk about climbing the ladder of success, and we believe that what awaits us at the top of that ladder of success is joy or at least some sense of satisfaction or accomplishment, whatever. But this downward mobility thing, this descending down the ladder instead is probably what most of us would think the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody After all, can there be any joy in going backwards or downwards rather than upwards? That's what I precisely want to talk to you about this morning, because the Bible would encourage everybody to step back and to question how true this thought of climbing the ladder of success really is. In fact, the Bible gives strong warnings to dangers that are inherent in trying to live by that philosophy. For example, the Bible would say that being prosperous does more harm than adversity does. It also indicates that when your focus is on striving to be successful, the health of your spirit, your relationship with God, your relationships with one another, those things tend to suffer if you're climbing the ladder of success. It says that when you get addicted to power and achievement, you start thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to, and and you wonder why other people aren't as smart as you are. You'll soon begin thinking that you don't even need God. You don't need that wife who helped you climb that ladder along the way. You don't have time for your kids anymore. Why? Because you're focused on climbing a ladder to succeed to live the dream, so to speak, to arrive at the pinnacle of success is not all that it's cracked up to be. I heard the story not too long ago of a, of a businessman who had spent his entire life climbing the proverbial ladder of success only to realize when he got to the top of the ladder that his ladder had been leaning against the wrong building. And his life began to crumble lost his wife, lost his family, all because he thought that he was doing what was important. Now, the Bible warns us that we won't find joy in those types of pursuits. In fact, it warns us that most of the time, if we're trying to pursue success, at least in the eyes of the world, that often that pursuit leads to arrogance, an independent spirit, and often even an ungrateful spirit. And that's why Jesus said that if your goal is to gain the whole world, you run the risk in that pursuit of losing your soul. By the same token, the Bible tells us that it's not often not the end of the world if your journey through life has to go through this downward spiral rather than an upward climb. Often when your life spirals downwards, your openness to God goes upward. Your reliance on other people, your willingness to engage in relationships of interdependency opens up. Now, having said all of that, that's just the introduction. Having said all of that, I want to talk to you this morning through a a famous passage of Scripture that informs us about Jesus' downward spiral. It's found in the New Testament book of Philippians chapter number 2, which just happens to be my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And uh, if you have a smartphone, you can go to the U Version app. All my notes are on that outline uh, uh, on U Version. Or Leonard will have the scripture for us on the screen if you want to follow there. Philippians chapter number two. I want to begin reading with verse number five with a rather startling statement that Paul makes. He says, Make your own attitude. That of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God the Father, dear Jesus, add your blessing to the words that you have laid upon my heart. I pray that you would anoint the hearts and minds of those who hear these words this morning to receive them, Lord, in the way that you have given them with a heart of love, reaching out to each and every one of us in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus starts out in heaven. We just read that. But then it says he comes to earth, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but that's quite a step down from heaven. Uh, You know, as human beings, uh, we we don't have this understanding of how great a step that was. But when he comes to earth, he takes upon himself the form of a man. Actually, he comes in the form of a baby. He puts on flesh flesh. and and becomes just like we were when we came into the world. But the Bible goes on to say that not only does Jesus take on human flesh and become a man, but he also becomes a servant. Now, it says an interesting thing about that. He doesn't just serve for a month or two and then take an express lane back to heaven. He submits himself to life. And everything that that brings, that ultimately culminates in his death. Just like every one of us here will have to one day experience, it is appointed unto man once to die, is what the Bible says. But for Jesus, it didn't even stop there. Paul gives us that one little phrase not only death, but even death on a cross. Death on a cross was the most torturous, awful form of execution known to people of that day. Now, for some of you, these digression of events that I've just described, it may seem kind of natural. I mean, after all, you're born, you live, and then you die. But if you think about it, that first step that Jesus took coming from heaven to earth, as I said, is a lot bigger step than we could ever imagine. Those of us who have only known the earth, we have no idea whatsoever how big a gap there is between heaven and earth. Back when I was a, a teenager, I was part of the Assemblies of God, and the Assemblies of God was having a, a general council, their biannual meeting that took place every year that brings together all of the, the leaders from the Assemblies of God, pastors, parishioners, everybody, and And they have this meeting that's called the General Council. And this particular year, the General Council happened to be not too far away from us. It happened to be in Denver, Colorado. And so uh, my pastor at that time, he had been planning on attending the council. And so he'd made reservations and, and gotten everything taken care of. But he had to cancel at the very last moment. And And so, my best friend and I, we decided that we needed to get away. And what better place to check out girls than at an Assemblies of God General Council? I'm just being honest. So, we took my pastor's hotel reservation. We headed to Denver, and now, quite obviously, we discovered that when he had made these reservations, he probably hadn't checked out the hotel very well before he made the reservation because, actually, it didn't resemble a hotel as much as it re- resembled a flop house, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and we, we checked into the hotel. It was located... For those of you who know anything about Denver, uh, the hotel was located right in downtown Denver on Colfax Avenue. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And as teenagers, as adventurous as we wanted everybody to think that we were, this place was scary. Drunks were laying on the street in front of the hotel. Prostitutes were doing their business up and down both sides of the street. And the first night we heard gunshots that couldn't have been more than a block away. And when we heard those gunshots, big being the big brave teenagers that we were, we got up and we propped a chair in front of the door so that nobody could get in. Now add to that the fact that the room was nasty. The carpet in that room was such that you didn't want to walk on it barefooted, if you know what I mean. The sheets on the bed were torn. The mattresses were shot. And when we got up the next morning to take a shower, we could barely get a trickle of water. And not only that, but, you know, it didn't even have ESPN. No, that's not true. ESPN didn't exist back then. That's how old I am. (laughs) So we thought about finding another hotel but with 12 to 15,000 people in denver for a convention you couldn't find any more rooms so we had to stick it out so as the second night comes we are we are lying awake in the middle of the night in a flop house and there are predominantly two thoughts on both of our minds the first thought was this why would our pastor have made a reservation at this place But the second thought on our mind was this, what would our moms think if they knew what kind of place we were staying in? Now, in order for you to appreciate what I just said, you have to understand that if you looked back in those days, if you looked up the word worry in the dictionary, it had a picture of my mom and my best friend's mom. That's just the way they were. And my point in telling you about this is that we were feeling scared, and not only that, but we were feeling pretty sorry for ourselves. We were accustomed to a certain way of life, a certain way of traveling, to certain kinds of hotels. Uh, And it was uncomfortable for us to have to take a step down from what we had come to be acquainted with as being normal. Now, as I said earlier, as human beings, we've only known earth. And we probably don't reflect much on what it meant for Jesus to leave heaven and to come down here. You see, the Bible says that heaven is a place of unimaginable beauty. Its sights, its sounds, its smells, its splendors are all that Jesus had ever known. And he comes down here and he wakes up as a baby in a manger. The first thing that Jesus sees as he becomes a human being is a barn. Have you ever been in a barn with livestock in it? The first smell that Jesus ever smelled as a baby was the smell of urine and manure. The first sounds he ever hears are of animals and chickens. In heaven, the scriptures tell us that Jesus had known nothing but legions of angels hovering around the throne of God, tens of thousands of them, assigned the job of singing eternally, Holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. There's none like you. That's all he's ever known, is complete adoration. But he comes down to that manger, and I can tell you there's none of that going on in that manger. There are just some cows, some donkeys, some sheep, a few people standing around. In heaven, all that Jesus is known is the perfection of the Trinity, the Father himself and the Holy Spirit uninterrupted, perfect, intimate relationship. But he wakes up here on the earth and he's all alone in the manger with what seemed to be two young teenagers who've just become parents and they're as scared as he is. Scriptures tell us that when Jesus was in heaven, all he had to do was, was say a word and the world as we know it would come into existence the Creator, unlimited power at His disposal. And now He finds Himself lying in a manger, probably as the kids told us earlier, in a cattle feeding trough. And He has no power whatsoever. After all, He's just a baby like we were and just like us. He has to hope that His mother is going to feed Him and take care of Him. And of course, you know what comes along with that. Those dirty diapers are going to have to be changed. The creator of the universe being dependent upon someone else to that degree. What I'm saying to you, friends, this morning is that we have no idea how great the gap is between heaven and earth. I could spend an hour on that one point alone of what a shock to the system it must have been to have lived forever in heaven and then wind up in a barn in a feeding trough on earth. I think you would agree with me in light of what we talked about at the beginning that was a pretty big demotion pretty big downward slide but it doesn't end there because Jesus becomes a man and those of us again who are human beings we only know what it's like to be human we're accustomed to feeling hungry or tired or exhausted we're used to being elbowed in Walmart We're used to being yelled at as we travel down our streets from other cars going by. Jesus, in his humanity, takes these same kinds of hits and blows that we take. And think about this for the first time in his existence, Jesus has feelings feelings of weariness, feelings of being exhausted, being hungry. Yeah, even being frustrated from time to time. But then it goes on, he doesn't just become a man, but a man who becomes a servant. Now, I would think that being a servant would be hard enough. But being the kind of servant that Jesus was meant that he was going to be a teacher. And, and, you know, it's hard when you have a difficult message to teach. And Jesus came with that kind of message. It was a message that requires that people respond to difficult challenges that will literally change their lives. Now, I think we can all agree on this. Changes of that magnitude are not easy. Life-changing situations. If you were called today to to leave whatever stage of life you are in, and to go do something radically different in a different country that you knew nothing about. That would be a life-changing decision, right? And it wouldn't be an easy one. So what I'm saying is most people like us, were resistant to messages like that. If you're, if you're a teacher like Jesus became, and you have a message to give on a consistent basis, that instead of people saying, yeah, I'll do that, his message was meant with more of a response of Yeah. Folded arms and eyes rolling back into their heads. You see, in heaven, here's Jesus recognized as a member of the Trinity, and everyone's saying, We adore you, Jesus. We we worship you. And now he comes down to earth and he's a man, he's a teacher, a servant. Human beings that he and his father created a long time ago are rolling their eyes at his message. They're saying, okay, Jesus, so what makes you such an authority on this subject? You want us to believe that everything you say is truth? Well, Jesus, we just don't buy that. As a matter of fact, we think you're a fake. So go on your way. I have to wonder what that kind of rejection would feel like to the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe. But I've got to go on because it doesn't stop there. Not only does Jesus agree to death, but he agrees to a very specific death crucifixion on a cross. I've been present when I've had friends or loved ones die, and that in itself is a a troubling experience. But I have to wonder, what would it be like to have to witness a friend or a loved one to die in the way that Jesus died? I don't mean to sound morbid, but what if one of my kids or grandkids were called to hang on a cross, or Brenda, one of our board members, one of my congregation? How awful would that be? What if we all watch someone we know, whom we love, whom we respect, being tormented, tortured? savagely beaten and hung up for ridicule and had to watch him bleed to death over a long period of time. I have a feeling that if any one of us had to watch a loved one die in that fashion, it would probably be more than we could bear. But think of this, friends, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who's only known adoration from eternity past. He takes all of these demotions. He winds up naked, bleeding, brutally beaten with a crown of thorns on his head. And he's bleeding and dying. And he's doing it voluntarily. 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 We have no concept of the space between heaven and a cross on a hill called Calvary. You see, when Jesus left heaven and willingly gave himself to all of these demotions that I've described for you here in Philippians chapter number 2, I have to believe that that's the most dramatic set of downward steps ever known to mankind. No one's ever had those kinds of demotions, ever been faced with those kinds of demotions, much less voluntarily submitted to them. There's never been anyone who's willingly signed up for something like that other than Jesus. And the result of all of this, God honored him. Gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, that what Jesus did here authenticated the fact that he truly was God in the flesh. Let me just digress for a moment because having said this, I know this question has to be on your mind. When you see all of this downward stuff, you have to ask yourself, why? Why would He do that? If Jesus knew beforehand that all of these demotions are awaiting Him, why would He do it? Was it because He's so bored in heaven wanting this new experience that He Decided to check out and see what was happening on earth? Was it that he wanted to teach and heal some people? Would those things have been enough to cause him to accept such demotions as these? Well, if you analyze it and you study what the Word of God says in its entirety you'll come to the conclusion that He came and went through all of this because of one word, sin. He came because sin required that He come. My sin and your sins were the reason that Jesus willingly demoted Himself and took this downward spiral and came here as one of us. Now all of us fall short of the standard of God's holiness. Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God." But perhaps you've wondered, well, who then has gotten closest to living up to God's standard of perfection? Mother Teresa Billy Graham, now I'm pretty sure that probably every one of us here this morning would certainly fall beneath Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, but that's not the issue. The problem that we all face, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and the rest of us, is this gap between our moral standing and the perfection of God. The real issue that we're all wrestling with is how are we going to deal with that gap that needs to be bridged between us and God because our sin separated us from God. What's going to bring us back together? As hard as we may try and as good as we may get, we're never going to get good enough to be considered to be perfect. We've already fallen too far. So someone from the outside has to help. (laughs) And here's the point I want you to wrestle with this morning. How many candidates were there to choose from to solve that gap, to bridge that gap? You know, I have, don't take this wrong. I used to work in prison ministry, so I'll tell you that before I tell you this. I have several friends who are in prison right now. And and they are in a an 8 by 12 cell inside a larger 16 by 24 pod with two other guys. And let's just pretend for a moment that one of my friends, in a burst of love, says to the other guys in his pod. You know what, guys, because I love you, I'm going to serve out your time. And he points to one, and he says, you have a year left. And he points to the other one, and he says, you have six months left. And to the other one, you have two years left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to add your time to my time, and you guys can go free. Now, how many of you think the Kansas Department of Corrections would go along with that? Of course they wouldn't. Why? Because my friends are serving their own time. You can't serve someone else's time when you're paying your own debt back to society. Can anybody in the human system pay for anyone else's sins? No. And the reason is because we all have this gap between our, we all have our own gap, I should say, between our moral standing and God's perfection. And nobody is responsible for that gap, but each of us individually. Nobody else can fix it for us. And that's why God the Father saw that there was only one who could be an appropriate, effective bridge between our sin and His standard of holiness. Someone from the outside had to come who was sinless, who owed no one anything. There was never a gap between His standards and God's standards, and that one, friends, is Jesus Christ. He came from the outside, the only one who could bridge our gap. He came and he did just that. He lived a sinless, perfect life, but then took upon himself our sin and the sin of the entire world, knowing that there was an ultimate price for sin that had to be paid. And that price was death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came because there was a sin problem that needed to be solved. A gap that needed to be bridged. And what was his motivation? Well, the Bible tells us. You've heard it before many, many times in many ways. It's found in John chapter number 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The love that motivated Jesus to take all of those steps for us, it was costly. It cost Him everything, His life. It cost Him His position. It cost Him His authority. So here, as I close this morning, is my message. That first verse that we read back in Philippians chapter number 2 said that we are to have the same attitude as that of Jesus. Servanthood. Downward mobility. Putting others in front of ourselves in terms of importance. And in so doing, bedding the farm that we're going to wind up with joy. That's, after all, what we're talking about this morning. And to understand that kind of joy, we turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, verse number 2, where it's speaking of Jesus, and it says, "...who for the joy that lay before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that as a result of all of those demotions, all of that downward spiral, the end result was going to be joy. What joy? Well, I can tell you what the joy is for us. It's the joy of having every wrong, stupid, heinous thing we've ever done forgiven, forgotten. The Bible says that when Jesus forgives our sins, he takes them and casts them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered against us again. For us, it means that we can be Reconciled to God. The gap being bridged between us and God. And i got to tell you, the best part, it punches my ticket to spend eternity in heaven with Him. I much prefer heaven to the other alternative. There's an old song that says this way, I was going to sing it, but I don't think I can. So I'll just give you the words. It says, do you want joy? Real joy? Wonderful joy? Let Jesus come into your heart. Worship team, would you come please? There may be some here this morning... And you don't have that source of joy in your life. Take the advice of that song. If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, let Jesus come into your heart. As we said earlier, this is the third Sunday of Advent. And we prepare ourselves for Jesus coming by talking about joy. The angels rejoiced when He came the first time, along with shepherds and wise men. But I want you to know something. Jesus wants to come to each and every one of us in this room this morning. And can I just say this without offending anyone? Wise men and women, wise boys and girls will welcome Jesus into their hearts. It'll be the wisest thing you ever do. And I can promise you that both in the here and now, and in eternity to come, you will rejoice with exceeding great joy. Would you bow with me please? Lord Jesus, I just want to say to you thank you for loving us enough to come down here and be just like one of us and bring us hope in the midst of our hopelessness. Prophet Isaiah said that we were lost and undone without God, without His Son. And Jesus, you left all the splendors of heaven. And you came down here to be just like us, to endure all the things that we are called upon to endure, to suffer and to die, and even to die on a cross which we know nothing about. And the only reason that you did that, Jesus, was because you loved us so very much. You gave up all of that glory, all of that splendor. And you exchanged it for the opportunity to be considered a common thief, a criminal. Punished by crucifixion. But the good news, Lord, beyond all of that is because you were sinless and perfect, even our sin laid upon you could not keep God from raising you from the dead three days later. And you came out of that tomb alive forevermore. And because you did that, and because we profess belief in you, Death holds no fear for us either. Because you live, we shall live also. Holy Spirit, my prayer is that if there's anyone in this room this morning under the sound of my voice that has not yet opened the gift, the greatest gift ever given, not opened it for themselves. That as a result of the gospel, the good news that they have heard this morning, that they would come to you today in saving faith. That they would experience the joy of having their sins forgiven, never to be held against them again. That they would be able to punch their ticket for eternal life in heaven with you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed, and I want to make this as easy and non-threatening as I possibly can. No one looking around because this is between you and God. If you're here this morning and you've not yet made that decision to come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, be reconciled to God. And you want to do that. Here's how easy it's going to be. I just want you to look up and I want you to meet my gaze. I'm going to be looking over this congregation. And if that's you, I want you to just look up and open your eyes so that I can see you. Yes, I see that. I see that. I see that. Anyone else? Over on this side. Yes, I see that. Thank you. Anyone else anywhere? You want to make that decision this morning. You want a new start, a fresh start, a clean slate between you and God. This is your time. Heavenly Father, thank you for these who have responded this morning. Lord, just by looking up at me doesn't save them, but Lord, I want you to give them the faith to pray this prayer with me this morning. Dear Jesus, I know I've I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've not been pleasing to you but I want you to forgive my sins I want you to to write my name down as being a member of the family of God I want you to give me power to overcome temptation I want to live a life that's pleasing to you Please forgive me, Jesus, and be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing that song that we sang earlier. And I want you to consider everything that I've shared with you this morning as we we share these words. Let's just sing the chorus and the bridge, Jacob,
1: if you would, please. Here in your presence, we are undone. Here in your presence, heaven and earth become one. Here in your presence, all things are new. In your presence, every bows before you. You're wonderful, beautiful, glorious. You're matchless in every way, wonderful, beautiful, glorious. Matchless in every way, wonderful, beautiful, glorious. Matchless in every way, wonderful. You're beautiful. Here in your presence we are undone here in your presence become one here in your presence all things are new Here in your presence, everything bows before you.
0: Thank you for being with us this morning, Jesus. Thank you for making everything new and some hearts this morning that needed it desperately. Thank you for coming. Thank you for willingly giving up all the attributes of heaven to come here and and just be here for us. We celebrate that this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here's what I want us to do. We're going to pray right now so that we don't have to pray for the meal and you folks can get about the business of eating. But here's what we want to do. We want our guests to be served first this morning. So if you are a guest of us this morning, you say, Well, Pastor, I've known my kids here every Wednesday night. doesn't matter. If you're a guest here this morning, you came to see your kids, we want you to be served first. And uh, then followed by our elderly, which doesn't include me. Yet. And then the rest of us. And I promise you there's plenty of food for everyone. So come and and join with us in a great meal. Heavenly Father, thank you for the food that's been prepared for us. I pray your blessing upon every hand that has prepared this wonderful meal today. And Lord, even more than all of that, I I ask your blessing upon our fellowship. I pray your blessing upon our guests this morning. God bless just show yourself to be real and show yourself to be exactly who you are in each of their hearts and lives this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Make your way back to the fellowship hall. Go ahead and serve yourself and start eating.